Hi, and welcome back to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series featuring articles from the December 2019 issue, Volume 40, Issue 12. First on today's episode, Bradley Langford joins us to discuss his article, High Versus Low Intensity, What is the Optimal Approach to Prospective Audit and Feedback in an Antimicrobial Stewardship Program? Note that this article is also available for journal CME. Then, John Mills discusses his article, The Devil is in the Details, Factors Influencing Hand Hygiene Adherence and Contamination with Antibiotic-Resistant Organisms Among Healthcare Providers in Nursing Facilities. And lastly, Kristen Marshall joins us to discuss her research on predicting hospital onset Clostridium difficile using patient mobility data, a network approach. After listening, please be sure to go to the December issue to read the full articles discussed in this episode. Joining us first today is Dr. Bradley Langford, the first author of the article, High versus Low Intensity, What is the Optimal Approach to Prospective Audit and Feedback in an Antimicrobial Stewardship Program? Dr. Langford, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you introduce yourself to our listeners? So my name is Brad. I'm a pharmacist consultant at Public Health Ontario with the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program, and I'm an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at uh, previously at Unity Health Toronto, where we did this project, and now currently at Hotel Du Shaver in St. Catharines, Ontario. Great. Well, welcome to the podcast. To begin, would you give us a little bit of the background for this study? Sure. Well, we know that prospective audit and feedback is a core component of many hospital antimicrobial stewardship programs. But what we don't know is the best way to optimally set up your prospective audit and feedback program to maximize its impact. So there's still some questions that remain in terms of who should be involved, how often should you do it, which patients should you review, and how best to communicate your recommendations. So at our hospital at St. Joseph's Health Center in Toronto, a couple of years after bringing on an antimicrobial stewardship physician, we decided to switch up how we did our prospective audit and feedback on the five internal medicine wards that we had in our hospital. So we switched it up from a less intensive approach to one of greater intensity. And our objective was to really uh, retrospectively evaluate the impact of the switch on antibiotic use. And so tell our listeners a little bit about what you did in this study and what you found. So I should first uh, further define what we mean by low versus high intensity perspective audit and feedback. In the low intensity phase, the antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist would review the patients uh, with a focus on those who are receiving broad spectrum or what we call targeted antibiotics, and then deliver the recommendations directly to the most responsible provider. In the high-intensity phase, though, the ASP pharmacist and the unit pharmacist had a shared responsibility for reviewing the patient cases. And then there was a shift to looking at all patients on antibiotics. And then we began holding what we called ASP rounds twice weekly on each internal medicine ward with the ASP pharmacist, the stewardship physician, the ward pharmacist, and the most responsible provider. And each round lasted approximately 30 minutes in length. 
So the, the switch from low to high intensity occurred in a staggered fashion across all five internal medicine wards between the dates of September 2014 and December 2015. And uh, what we did was an interrupted time series analysis to look at antibiotic use and clinical outcomes before and after the intervention, looking at the periods of one to 24 months before and one to 24 months after the intervention. So we looked at this both in a crude and unadjusted fashion, and then in an adjusted fashion where we were able to account for seasonal and secular trends uh, before and after the intervention. So after the switch in intensity from low to high intensity, we saw a drop in antibiotic use by about 19% in our adjusted analysis. And this drop in antibiotic use was really more evident in the later end of the period, so the 12 to 24 month period after the intervention. And the de decrease in usage was driven largely by targeted antibiotic use without an increase in com uh, compensatory increase in uh, non-targeted antibiotic usage. And overall, we really saw no differences in our clinical outcomes, including C. difficile infection, readmission rate, length of stay, or hospital mortality rate. And so what would you say are the key takeaways from your study most relevant to the itchy readers? So our findings suggest that there may be some key components of perspective audit and feedback programs that may make it more impactful. Uh, these include having an interdisciplinary program where you really get everyone involved, including the antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist and the physician, as well as the patient care team um, involved in a, in a rounds-based approach. Um, having a face-to-face, -face, a collegial-based approach where uh, the focus is on learning, so we're not just talking about the patients at the time, but also how we might uh, manage future cases of, uh, that are of similar nature. And then making sure that it's comprehensive by reviewing all patients who are on antibiotics rather than a select subset. And what's interesting is this really seems to echo other literature done by uh, colleagues in the U.S., uh, Dr. Amanda Hurst and, and colleagues at the Children's Hospital Colorado, where they performed what they called handshake stewardship. And this is very similar to our high-intensity perspective audit and feedback in that the approach is collegial rather than restrictive. It addresses patients on all kinds of antibiotics and is an in-person rounds-based uh, approach with both the ASP pharmacist and the physician. So what we feel is that this really reinforces the teamwork aspect of antimicrobial stewardship. And it might present some considerations for antimicrobial stewardship programs that are just beginning to do prospective audit and feedback or looking to increase the impact of their program. And lastly, can you talk about the limitations of this study and any future research questions that it raised? Well, this is a, a retrospective study, so we know that there could be unmeasured confounders. But what we found reassuring was that we did see a shift in reduction in antimicrobial usage on all wards that we looked at. And there were really no other major changes uh, during that time that would have explained changes in antibiotic use. Secondly, our, our data were presented at the ward level rather than the individual prescriber level. And uh, getting individual prescriber data is harder, but it is definitely preferred because very often there's more than one prescriber on a ward at any given time. So ideally, you want to be able to tease out the impact of, of this uh, high-intensity approach on only the physicians that were involved in the initiative. Thirdly, we, we didn't collect any workload statistics. So clearly, there's going to be a lot more clinician time involved in a high-intensity approach. 
So really any potential benefit to, to using high intensity perspective audit and feedback may need to be weighed against the additional workload that's required. From a future research perspective, we know that most antimicrobial stewardship perspective audit and feedback initiatives uh, tend to work. They're effective. So future research should really continue to fine tune perspective audit and feedback rather than to try to compare it to no intervention. There's also an interest at our hospital and at other hospitals to combine perspective audit and feedback with provider level antibiotic use data to help show clinicians how they prescribe compared to their peers and then offer them some concrete change ideas that they can help to use to improve their practice. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Langford, for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thanks. It was my pleasure. Our next guest today is John Mills, first author of the article, The Devil is in the Details, Factors Influencing Hand Hygiene Adherence and Contamination with Antibiotic-Resistant Organisms Among Healthcare Providers in Nursing Facilities. Dr. Mills, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us today. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, I am, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on today. Um, I'm an assistant professor of infectious disease at the University of Michigan. Um, I'm also the associate hospital epidemiologist there um, with a focus on uh, MDRO prevention, uh, particularly in the long-term care setting. Great. Well, to begin, can you give us a little bit of the background for this study? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, as many of the listeners are aware, MDRO colonization rates um, and HAI rates in uh, in nursing facilities are high. One of the cornerstones to, for infection prevention is, is good hand hygiene. This study is actually an offshoot of a larger parent uh, cohort study that was assessing uh, MDRO colonization rates among residents at six long-term care facilities in Southeast Michigan. In that parent study, patients were enrolled upon admission to the facility um, after uh, hospitalization, and they were uh, cultured on various uh, anatomical sites, including nares, oropharynx, axilla, groin, perirectal area, and their environment, their, their room, high-touch surfaces in the room were also cultured for MDROs, uh, specifically MRSA, VRE, and resistant gram-negative bacilli that being resistant to either septazidine, imipenem, or ciprofloxacin. And that prior study showed really high rates, greater than 50% of residents were colonized with at least one of the three uh, MDRO categories. And in this study, we looked at, uh, we wanted to look at the, the healthcare workers and their interactions with the patients, um, and specifically look at factors that may influence hand hygiene rates among the, the healthcare workers, uh, knowing that and hygiene rates in uh, long-term care facilities are, are historically uh, low, uh, lower even than that in acute care hospitals. And so for this particular study, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you did and what you found? So um, in this study, the, um, the study personnel that were at these facilities already doing cultures on the patients and their environment, and they'd be there typically once or twice a week um, for this study, we also did uh, observations of healthcare workers during routine patient care and had a standardized observation sheet looking at a few specific factors. We wanted to home in on um, 
whether or not they wore gloves, what activities they performed while they were in the room, what patient care activities, um, the role of the healthcare provider, and the length of time they spent in the room. And we looked at hand hygiene before care and after care. In addition to that, the healthcare workers that consented to being observed actually had their hands cultured before and after patient care. And those cultures, they were assessed for growth of the same pathogens, MRSA, VRE, and, and resistant gram-negative bacteria. Um, and the goal was to look at what factors were associated with uh, improved hand hygiene among the healthcare providers, and then also to look at their rate of acquisition of uh, antibiotic-resistant organisms. And so what did you find? So what we found were, were pretty horrifyingly low rates of hand hygiene in general. I'd say, uh, you know, we found hand hygiene before care was uh, 27% on, on average, and uh, we saw 46% hand hygiene adherence after care. Uh, we also saw quite high um, overall use of gloves. 45% of patient care encounters, um, the healthcare worker used uh, wore gloves. And we performed a multivariate logistic regression and looked at factors associated with pan hygiene. We found that glove use was, was positively associated with um, improved hand hygiene. Um, and we found that certain job roles, specifically the certified nurse assistant role, was associated with lower hand hygiene rates compared to uh, nurses. And that was before, patient, before care. And then after care, we saw lower rates of hand hygiene associated with the CNA role as well as the physical therapist, occupational therapist job role. As far as the activities performed in the room, we dichotomized activities into those that we considered higher risk for acquisition of, likely acquisition of an ARO, um, as in things where one would have higher likelihood of coming in contact with blood, body, fluids, contaminated objects, things that would require glove use per HICPAC guidelines. And we didn't find any association with those high-risk activities and higher hand hygiene rates. For the, the micro aspect of our study, the culturing of the hands of the healthcare workers before and after care, we found that almost 1% of healthcare workers had uh, positive cultures for, for at least one antibiotic-resistant organism before care, um, and then 6.3% of uh, hand cultures after uh, care were positive for uh, at least one uh, antibiotic-resistant organism. And so what would you say are the key takeaways from this study for itchy readers? Uh, I'd say that the study gives us a little better insight into um, the specifics of factors that may influence hand hygiene rates in the nursing facility population, a population that hasn't been studied particularly well. And there are a number of studies that suggest that wearing gloves are associated with lower rates of hand hygiene. And that our, our findings were, were the opposite in that uh, folks that wore gloves were more likely to wash their hands. So we didn't find that glove use specifically was an impediment to hand hygiene, although, again, hand hygiene rates overall were quite low, and I think a lot of work needs to be done on hand hygiene rates. And I think that the differences between different healthcare worker roles suggest that a little more thought has to go into the education and training uh, of each specific job role and sort of tailor their, their training to the specific needs and the activities that are um, involved in each specific job role, the, the certified nurse assistant probably is doing more of the incontinence care and the 
changing in balloons versus the nurse giving medications versus the physical therapist. And I think uh, a little more thought is going to their practice patterns and how we can encourage better hand hygiene rates amongst them. Um, we also found that there, you know, 6.3% of interactions involved uh, ARO contamination of the healthcare workers hands after activity. Um, and if you think that, you know, if you estimate that hand hygiene after care is 50%, that means that, you know, in, in three, roughly three to 4% of cases, uh, there's a potential for transmission to, to another patient. So it really just illustrates the scale of the uh, potential problem of transmission of AROs from patient to patient in, in these facilities. And lastly, can you talk a little bit about the limitations of this study and any future research questions that they may have raised? Sure, yeah, I'd say you know, one limitation is we didn't look at all five moments of hand hygiene. So uh, we didn't assess uh, activities inside the room, only hand hygiene at the beginning and end of care. Um, and we didn't assess the appropriateness of glove use. So we found quite high rates of glove use, but we weren't able to determine how much of that it was, was appropriate versus inappropriate. It's also, it can be challenging to analyze the specific activities and the, the association with hand hygiene when there's quite a lot of bundling of different activities together. And so as far as future research, there are several other projects that are um, related to the same uh, cohort of patients followed at these six Michigan nursing facilities. Um, we found quite high rates of ARO contamination specifically in the privacy curtains in many of these facilities, and we're currently examining um, the relationship of that contamination to patient colonization with these AROs and whether or not they're a potential source of transmission. Another uh, avenue that we're exploring is looking at the colonization pattern of these patients who remain in these facilities for long periods of time, and um, we're seeing a, a fair amount of uh, new acquisition of AROs as well as patients who are uh, spontaneously losing uh, colonization with these organisms and what, what factors may be playing a role in uh, those that acquire new ARO colonization versus those that are able to decolonize and, and um, remain free of them moving forward. Additionally, uh, Dr. Modi, the, the senior author on this paper, she's a principal investigator on another, um, on an HRQ grant that we're involved with that actually involves interventions in these facilities um, aimed at preventing resistance um, and infection by integrating the infection prevention systems of nursing facilities with those at the regional acute care hospitals and uh, a collaboration between the hospitals and facilities to share resources and to improve communication uh, with the goal of reducing rates of HAIs in these facilities. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Mills, for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thanks for having me. Our last guest today is Dr. Kristen Marshall, first author of the article, Predicting Hospital Onset Clostridium Difficile Using Patient Mobility Data, a Network Approach. Dr. Marshall, thanks so much for joining us today. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Uh, so my name is Kristen Marshall, um, and the research in this manuscript that we're discussing today was actually my PhD dissertation research at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. This work was done in collaboration with the Clinical and Translational Science Institute, the Rochester Center for Health Informatics, and the Department of Physics and Astronomy. 
Well, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Um, would you give us a little bit of the background for this study? Sure. So the model we built in this study was to measure how Clostridium difficile travels through the hospital from patient to patient. So for those who may not be as familiar with Clostridium difficile, um, also known as C. diff, it is highly contagious and it is a spore-forming gram-negative anaerobic bacillus. It is typically transmitted by oral fecal contamination and it tends to cause outbreaks in healthcare settings. So some of the patients in hospitals that may have risk factors for C. diff are those who are hospitalized for long periods of time, those who are immunocompromised or over the age of 65, those who use antibiotics, and there are a few other risk factors, but um, I guess those are the main ones we'll talk about today. So CDC estimates that we have roughly 453,000 cases of C. diff a year, and this results in 29,300 deaths. So it's not something that we really think should be underestimated. So um, a lot of the risk factors I mentioned have been examined in the literature previously, but we did find um, a gap in the literature in looking at patient mobility as a risk factor. So we've seen it um, be examined in terms of high frequency of transfers and longer length of stay, but we haven't really found a lot about how they move and where they go. So several studies um, have previously described inter-facility transfers and their association with increased HAIs but um, there, there isn't a lot that's been done to examine intra-hospital transfers, meaning how patients move from unit to unit within a single hospital admission. So we already know that a high number of transfers and a longer length of stay can be associated with an increase in exposure opportunities for infections such as environmental contamination and healthcare worker contact, but we did not really find much in our initial literature review examining transfer dynamics and being able to quantify risk of infection in terms of how patients are transferred. So uh, we wanted to look at this specifically involving data where a patient currently is in the hospital and where they previously have been. Another factor we wanted to look at was um, examining risk at the inpatient unit level instead of the individual patient level. So when you think about it, patients are grouped in hospitals geographically and they tend to share the same environment, staff, and equipment. So in order to quantify and predict unit level risk of C. diff, we used network modeling, risk predictive modeling, um, and then we built a hybrid model, which we named contagion centrality. And so can you talk a little bit more about what you did for this study and then also tell our listeners what you found? Sure. So the first thing we did, uh, well, we had kind of a three-step approach. First, we built a network model of every qualifying inpatient transfer in a two-year period. So we did this using EHR data from a 739-bed hospital. Uh, we ended up with about 72,600 inpatient admissions from the beginning of 2013 through the end of 2014. So within these admissions, 884 of our patients had a positive CDF lab, and we determined roughly half of these cases to be hospital-acquired. So in the network we built, um, our network consists of nodes and edges. The nodes represent the units in the hospital that the patients may be admitted to, and the edges represent the transfer of patients between each unit. So this network identified 40 nodes and 1,003 unique edges. These edges are weighted, and that means that they have actual values associated with them, which is kind of cool. Um, we were able to show the rate of transfer of patients between each unit, and then in order to account for factors like census or seasonality, we then calculated a weekly transfer rate between each pair of units. 
So the second step in our project was to determine population susceptibility or risk to CDI based on how patients are grouped during their admission. So we did this by constructing a multivariate logistic model using purposeful model selection methods with our outcome being hospital-acquired CDI. This model identified nine predictor variables for CDI and yielded a 0.81 area under the curve. So from this model, we were able to calculate individual patient susceptibility during their admission. Then from there, we created an algorithm that takes the mean susceptibility for every inpatient unit every day based on which patients are housed in those units. So this gave us a dynamic susceptibility measure that changes when patients move in or out of a unit and it's able to capture the whole group of patients instead of just the individual patient. This susceptibility was then compared to our network using what's called network centrality measures. So these measures tell you about the relationship of a node to the rest of the network, um, how connected or not connected they are and how they may influence other nodes in their connections. So there are several centrality measures, but um, the only one we're going to focus on today is closeness centrality. This is the only centrality measure that was associated with time-sensitive variables in our susceptibility model, meaning that these predictors occurred before the patient had a positive CDI lab. Um, this relationship suggests that the incoming transfer edges are important when analyzing unit susceptibility to CDI. So using all of this data, we were able to build a hybrid model that was designed to be written into an e-record system. So in this model, we used the weekly transfer rates or the mobility of the patient, the daily unit susceptibility, and the locations in the hospital where there are any existing CDI cases. Um, and this model uh, was able to identify which units are the highest risk for CDI transmission on any given day. So it's pretty dynamic. The measure that this model yields is what we call contagion centrality. So this metric was designed to help infection prevention teams in hospitals be able to kind of focus their efforts um, and know which units are at higher risk than others. And this model actually helps you not only to identify which units have the highest risk, but also what may be contributing to that risk, which can lead to even more focused infection prevention efforts. In the paper, the figures we have that are plotting contagion centrality actually show this metric deconstructed. So when you plot it deconstructed, broken down by two components, uh, the flow of infection versus unit susceptibility, you can see um, which units have that higher risk and higher values on each axis, but then you can also see which axis is contributing to that high risk. It may be both, it may be one or the other. So if a unit has higher uh, flow of infection that may let you know that their higher risk patients may be more susceptible to those patients coming in from units that have CDI already in them. And so if you're able to restrict transfers, you can, or if your patients are just really susceptible, you may be able to help protect them with isolation precautions. So contagion centrality is statistically significant with an outcome of hospital onset CDI. Its mean predictive days prior to a new case is 3.44 days. And so what would you say are the key takeaways for itchy readers? To our knowledge, this is the first clinical tool for the prediction and surveillance of hospital onset CDI that accounts for hospital mobility um, and also accounts for generalized population risk from patient environment and healthcare worker contact. We were able to quantitatively show that higher incoming transfer rates from units with higher numbers of CDI cases 
are statistically associated with new cases of hospital onset CDI on the receiving unit. Um, the contagion centrality measure and proposed prevention tools can be tailored to different facilities and possibly even for different hospital infections transmitted by contact. And lastly, can you talk a little bit about the limitations of your study and any future research questions that it raised? Sure. So some of our limitations um, were that we only had two years of data, unfortunately, for this study. We would have loved to have had more. Um, and by now, uh, now that it's published, this data is five to six years old. So we would love to see this project um, be replicated with newer and more, more data. And unfortunately, we were not able to capture outpatient antibiotic usage. We were only able to get antibiotics that were prescribed within our hospital system and an inpatient admission. So that's something that we would also recommend for future studies to be able to capture that outpatient antibiotic usage. We also did not have colonization data. So that is something else we would recommend uh, that can be incorporated in that would really make this model more specific and tailored to the facility. These limitations, uh, if they could be accounted for in future studies, it could really improve this model and make it more specific in general. I think it would also be pretty interesting to do network clustering methods and identify community characteristics between the units that transfer. Um, I think that that could create kind of sub-communities within the full hospital community instead of just isolating it by unit. And I think that eventually, whenever there is more data, being able to trial this in an EHR system will help identify any um, adjustments that need to be made and really improve the model overall. And last of all, I think I would love to see this model used for different types of contact infections or MDROs in hospitals and see if it performs the same as it does for C. diff. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Marshall, for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. This concludes Episode 17 of the Itchy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and thanks for listening.